You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to a series of events? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with the author of The Lost Boys of Montauk, Amanda Fairbanks, and after their break, singer-songwriter Stuart Marcus joins us in studio. Amanda, nice to have you on, on the podcast. I appreciate it greatly. Hi, Larry. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for uh, read, not only reading my book, but uh, making the time to talk with me about it. Now, when I picked the book up, I went to the epigraph from Joan Didion, which I think is really interesting. And this is a thought that came into my mind. The sea taketh and the sea giveth. I'm going to mention three names. People on the east end of Long Island will probably remember these names. People in other parts of the country probably won't. But this is the first thing that captured my attention with your book. Spalding Gray, the great, great storyteller. Norman Jaffe, the architect who designed that beautiful temple where my former sister-in-law is the cantor in East Hampton. And also somebody that you did a great story with for the New York Times, Stephanie Reese. So the first question will be, in terms of being a writer in this story, what did the story give you? And in a sense, did it take anything away from you? Mm. What did the story give me and what did it take away? Is that yeah. what you said? Yes. Well, this is a beautiful story and it's a heartbreaking one. Um, and obviously it's been living with me for the past, well, almost four years. And I think it won't ever not be living with me. Um, you know, I think increasingly I'm drawn to stories that move me personally right. and deeply. And, um, and that is certainly the case for these four lost men. And not only the four men that were lost on this fishing boat, but for um, their families and, and the loved ones and really the women uh, that they left behind. And that became really such a fascination of mine that, you know, the widow and the, the mothers and the girlfriends and how it was that this tragedy would exert um, such a force on, on their lives down through the, the years and the decades since. Obviously, as you know, my book take pl- takes place in 1984. So this isn't um, recent history here on the East End. Um, but what I was struck by in my many of my interviews was just the immediacy of that of that grief, no matter uh, the time that's gone past. Well, in terms of the interviews, I learned a lesson when I sat down more than a few years ago with survivors of the Holocaust and did some interviews and conversations with them. And what I took away was sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger than a family member. So you you say, in a sense, even though you've been on the East End for a while, you're an outsider. So was it easier for these people to warm up to you or was it harder because of the aspect, unless you're born and bred in East Hampton and Montauk and the whole East End, you're always going to be an East, an outsider. Right, right, certainly. So, you know, I, I do think actually um, that what what you say that there's a real resonance there. I think often it is easier to talk about um, our lives and ourselves to people that don't necessarily have that backstory um, and that history with us for whatever the reason. Um, there's sort of an anonymity there or a safety there. I found. Um, and what was so interesting, you know, I interviewed over a hundred people for this story and many of my sources I interviewed for dozens of hours over the years. And what I found was that there were really only two or three 
two or three people that I reached out to that that did not want to share their stories with me. Um, and obviously the vast majority were so generous with their time. And, um, and I think, you know, weren't necessarily, um, you know, I, I think sometimes I, I worry that my outsider status, you know, was was a disadvantage, but I think it actually helped kind of carry me along because they could help sort of bring me into their lives and explain to me all of the things that that were new to me and that I didn't understand and that I didn't go into it with a lot of preconceived notions because there was a real a real newness to, to so many aspects of the story. But in a sense, because it takes place in 1984 and now 2021, memories sometimes morph into something else. When you're trying to research this book and dealing with a lot of people, a huge cast of characters in a sense, how do you deal with the aspect of maybe what happened then and the memories now are slightly different? Oh, and 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 more than slightly different. Um, in the course of my reporting and, and in the years since, I've become very fascinated by this thing that we call memory. Um, I think often as humans, we like to think of memory as this this fixed thing right. that exists in fact and, and objectivity and what have you. And it's actually, um, you know, what's been so fascinating to, to discover, it's so much more of this amorphous, um, constantly shifting thing. You know, obviously, if you and I were sitting having lunch and there were, you know, a car accident occurred right in front of our, our table. Um, we would recall it differently. Each of us, uh, maybe the details of that, you know, that afternoon and certainly a week after that and a year after that. And the questions that the person asking you about that incident would cause you to recall it differently. Um, and, and certainly I came into that. I, I discovered that, um, through many aspects of the story, just wildly different recollections of events. And, and also when there's been a traumatic loss, what often happens, um, in our, in our human minds is that we're either sort of frozen in time right. at that trauma. And we recall everything from, you know, the smell of, of, of what we were eating to the clothes that we were wearing, or the mind cleverly sort of um, blocks all of that out and, and, and we don't remember a thing. So that's, that's, that was often an, another tricky thing for me to traverse was, was just the depth of, of, of some people's recollections versus others who had, had really blocked it out entirely. If you're just joining us, this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. And I'm joining us is the author of The Lost Boys of Montauk, Amanda M. Fairbanks. Now, to me, the Lost Boys of Montauk have multiple meanings. Would you agree or disagree? I would definitely agree. Yes. It was also, yes. Tell me, tell me your, your, your interpretations of that. I'm so curious. Well, my hear. first interpretation, looking at the cover, the perfect storm. My uh, interpretation after reading the book, there are so many layers to this story, and there's a lot quote-unquote, lost people that are still survivors. And that's what I took away. And, and the beauty of what you do, because I know right now you're, you're in a media tour, is you're going to get different responses from different readers and different interviewers. But that's my analysis of this book. And I saw the title. I'm saying this was really smart. Because if you read the book and get beyond the event, which I want to talk about, there really are a lot of lost people try in a mm -hmm. sense to reclaim their lives, even if they have been part of the initial tragedy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think also too, that that's, I love that analysis. Um, the, the one, one addition to that would be 
uh, for me too, um, in, in the discovery of it, um, 1984 is a very interesting sort of lens with which to examine the East End. It was before all the Wall Street money came in. It was certainly before the tech, the technology boom and that influx of capital transformed this area. Um, and I think, in a, you know, it was, it was a simpler time. It was a more innocent time. Right. And in that way, um, not only are, are some of the, the survivors lost, and we can discuss that in more detail, but, but I think it was really, a, a, it's a lost era. It's a bygone era. Um, it's an era having which not lived here at the time. You know, I was a, a young girl living in Los Angeles who grew up in Los Angeles. Um, it's it, it's a bygone era that I long for. You know, it's this lost period of time that I dearly wish we could, uh, in some ways, go back to. In so. a sense, I think what you're addressing in terms of the characters, it's a loss of innocence for a lot of these people, and and so to kind of move from that because we can play with that a little bit. But I think the first chapter, once again, is that kind of the perfect storm story. So what happened for people who have not read your book or heard you speak? Uh, what happened on March 22nd, 1984, to the windblown? So March 22nd, 1984, there were these four uh, young men who were doing this thing called long lining for tilefish, which um, was a type of commercial fishing it was right in the sweet spot of, of the golden tile fish. And they were making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars conceivably each week. Um, these guys were planning to go out for five, five to seven days, give or take. And at the very, very end of their trip, uh, which had been very successful, they had caught, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of fish right. and they were caught in just a truly horrific storm that as that week went on, um, eventually became a nor'easter. Um, and all, you know, everyone else made it back to, to Montauk and points north and south uh, in time. However, these guys, um, for, for all sorts of reasons, some of which we'll never know, um, that, you know, the last point of contact was, was 12 miles off, off the point. Um, and, and they, they were never heard from again. It would, you know, they were, they were lost at sea all hands on deck. Um, they just, they disappeared. And in the, the, you know, days thereafter, the, the, the search crews found pieces of the boat and, 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 and that, and what have you, but they, they never found the men, um, the bodies of the men, nor did they ever, uh, recover the whole of the steel, uh, vessel. Before I forget, I, yes. yeah. before I forget, did somebody tell you they knew where the wreckage is and you were sworn to secrecy or have you changed? Is that accurate <laughs> or have you changed your mind about telling us exactly where it is? Well, you know, the coordinates um, are, are sort of, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I've now obviously become somewhat familiar with a group of, of men. They're only men that I know of. If they're women, I don't mean to any disrespect um, who are these sort of shipwreck hunters um, right. in new England and long Island and, one actually contacted me just two weeks ago and he believes, um, you know, that he knows where the coordinates uh, are located and, and has promised to take me out on his dive boat later this summer to go down and search for that. So I will have to keep you posted on that front, but no, the, the, the remains of the boat have yet to be discovered. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think there, there might be a lot of closure there if that's the case later this summer. Now, is, this book is really a character study, and it's in a sense, it's about the have and the have-nots. And I, I want you to break down the four-man crew, because two of them, in my 
estimation are the haves. And the other two, not that they're not equally as worthy, but in terms of where they came from, blue-collar type of thing, are the have-nots. And that dichotomy fascinated me because you also it's also broken down into the memorial service, how two were treated and two, in a sense, were ignored, which is almost a microcosm for the breakdown to what happens in the dock people in Montauk and now the new summer people in Montauk, in a certain sense of how the whole East End has changed over the decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the, you know, the first things that, that intrigued me about the story was this kind of upstairs, downstairs component. And as a journalist in this area... Oh, you said that much better than I did. Thank you for that, for that comparison. <laughs> no, no, no. But the, you know, the, as a journalist here in the present day, the, the socioeconomic differences between you know, the 1% and the working class are, are just of endless fascination to me. Um, and it's been you know, some of the work that I've done and, and that I hope that I continue to do is to tell that story. But but once I discovered that there was this similar discrepancy aboard this fishing boat, I just became so intrigued by it, how it was that these, you know, so two of the sons, Mike Stedman, um, men rather, um, Mike Stedman, who was the captain, and David Connick, who was the first mate, you know, were, were these sons of incredible privilege. Um, you know, Mike's father had gone to Harvard and he had, you know, risen up through the United Nations. And um, and Dave Connix, you know, was a Maidstone. His family had been a Maidstone Club member going back to his father, you know, his grandfather. And they had a gorgeous house um, on the crossways, which is south of the highway in East Hampton. Right. And he had grown up in a Fifth Avenue penthouse and, you know, just all of the, the, the you know, the notes of privilege, uh, boarding school, what have you. And, you know, the likelihood that they would all find themselves on a, a commercial fishing boat with these two other young men, uh, one of whom was 18 and 19, um, was just really rather unthinkable you know, at the time. Um, and, 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 you know, by and large commercial fishing, um, is, is not an elite occupation. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, and, and so it's just, it became really fascinating to examine the lives of these four men and the unlikelihood with which they found themselves on this, the same, the same vessel. Now the journey, the ship, commercial fishing ship, the windblown is interesting. And we can talk about that, where it came from, where, where, uh, Dave, uh, yeah, Stedman bought it. But a lot of people say when they looked at it, when it came back to Montauk and had its problems along the way coming back up, I think, from Texas. Is that where it came from originally? Yes, you're such a careful reader. I love it. <laughs> so they're, they're saying, and, and you can give me the names because, as you said, there's hundreds of characters in this book. They looked at this boat and just said, it's not seaworthy. Right, what is he right. doing? Why did he purchase this? And why did they go out with a book, with a boat, excuse me? That really shouldn't be out in these those kind of conditions. Bad storm or not bad storm. Right, right. No, I and I I think that was really the heartbreak and and the you know the feeling that that some of the fishermen had of why they hadn't more forcefully spoken up that when they looked at this boat that had been you know built as one thing and then used as another, which is one red flag against it. You never want to use a boat for a purpose with which it wasn't designed to be used. And then, you know, it had been added on to in terms of this, you know, its length, which is another, you know, according to the nautical engineers that I interviewed, another sort of check in the, in the negative direction. And then, you know, because he was longlining, he needed this, this giant drum with which to spool out, you know, miles and miles of, of fishing line. And they, 
because there wasn't really any available real estate on the deck of the boat, they had to attach it on the very, very top, which made it just extraordinarily top heavy. Um, And so, you know, once it confronted that horrific storm and these huge waves, it just, it really didn't stand a chance. It also had a wooden, um, you know, wheelhouse and that, that is just not a great thing when you're going, you know, it's fine if you're a party boat and, you know, just taking, uh, folks out for a day of fishing. And it's another thing entirely if you're hundreds of miles offshore. My guest once again is Amanda M. Fairbanks, her book. It's pretty new, by the way. It's called The Lost Boys of Montauk. There is one character in this book, and I'm thinking of the overall title, frame of this next question, Secrets and Lies. It sounds like a soap mm-hmm. opera. Mary Stedman, <laughs> which I was married to Mike. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on with her from the time we first meet her to almost the very end. Can you share about your input? And why did she talk to you, by the way? So this book began began with Mary, you know, um, and it wouldn't have gone forward without her, her, you know, her participation at the very, from the very, very beginning. Um, Mary Stedman has a photographic memory and, you know, we would talk for hours at a time. Um, and she could recall with such specificity, you know, what was happening on a Tuesday afternoon in March of 1984. Just, I never really interviewed anyone with, with a memory quite like that. And, and I'm not sure that I will again. Um, Mary, as you just come to discover in the book, is, is a complicated woman with many, many different layers. And, um, you know, I don't know that I will ever stop thinking about her. And and the complexity with which she brings to the story. I mean, it, it's obviously nonfiction that I write, but I couldn't, you know, if I were writing fiction, I couldn't have dreamed up um, a more fascinating, you know, protagonist. Obviously, this book is about ostensibly her husband, but as as you know, it's it's really a book about about the survivors, and it's about it's about Mary in particular, and you know, all of the the things that that she had hoped for in their marriage and, and then how she sort of tried to, to put herself back together in the years since. Now, this is the second time uh, doing my podcast, one previously now joining us, having you join us. And I thank you very much. Or something called, I just learned about this like last week, EDMR. My previous mm. guest, Jennifer Murphy, wrote this great book about being a first responder. She's a terrific writer just like you. Hers is a memoir, and she utilized it because of some trauma in her life. And it mm. comes up again, I believe, with one of Mike's children. And for the second time, it's, this is almost serendipity. I am, reading <laughs> about, I am reading about something I knew nothing about a few weeks ago, <laughs> EDMR. So what is EDMR, and how does it play into one of the characters in your book? So, yes, fascinating. So another, you know, one of the things I love about journalism is that you get to become a mini expert, right? And all of these different things. And that was, that was, I hope that you, that you got the sense of my, my true obsession with this book and its many topics and subtopics. Um, so as I delved into, you know, the, these topics of grief and loss, um, and again, it was just, I can't emphasize enough, you know, it was a year and a half of, of really just interviews largely about grief and loss over and over and over again, really heavy stuff. Um, several of the men that I had the pleasure of talking with, you know, would have these breakdowns, whether I was meeting with them in person or over the telephone. Um, and that was very heavy, but, um, 
It really wasn't until Chris Stedman, who was the eldest son of the captain. So he kind of almost swapped places with his mother, Mary. Um, and he also has this incredible memory and, and, and brought me into, you know, what it meant to, to put his life back together right. and to heal from this horrible tragedy. And, and to be quite honest with you, you know, that wasn't accessible to me at, you know, when I was first getting to know him, but but as as you know, as we grew, grew closer as a journalist and a source, um, he really let me in on on how this had impacted him, and and actually, really, my showing up in his life and asking him all of these questions kind of set off another cascade of trauma. And it was in and meeting with this therapist, the EMDR is a is a type of therapy that actually shows incredible efficacy and healing um, survivors of, of incredible trauma. And it sort of rewires the brain so that it's not as though they, they forget the trauma or anything like that, but it's just that it doesn't have that same power of, you know, ruining your day or devastating your, your, your life that you can sort of, you know, compartmentalize it in a different way. Um, and I do have to say, you know, the, the book was kind of going to end in this really bleak, awful way in the earlier iterations of it. And it wasn't until, that moment of real hopefulness that Chris shared with me that I felt like, oh, you know, thank goodness. Finally, I, I feel like I can end the reader, you know, leave the reader um, in a place of, of, of feeling, uh, you know, a sense of, of hopefulness that, that at the end of this long and tragic and sad, very sad story, um, you know, there, there's a, a hope for, for a bit of reconciliation with, with that past. Now, correct me if I get this wrong, but I took away from the book something that Chris said about his father, Captain Mike. He's, I believe, I'm, I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing, but once again, you will correct the record. Going down the windblown is akin to a classic Greek tragedy. Is that his thoughts? Is that what he internalized? He does, yeah. Uh, you know, Chris is, is very spiritual, and um, he's, I'd sort of describe him as a, as a, a true kind of stoicist, and and he does. He sees, you know, he was this this young, beautiful guy who, um, who, who, you know, with a, an incredible amount of hubris, bought the wrong boat and got caught in the storm. And um, and it's a, really a tale as old as time. You know, it's it's a universal story of, of fathers and sons and 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 life that could, you know, that, that death is this thing that happens really to the living. Um, it's the people who are left behind that, that get to, you know, make sense of it all. And um, there are all sorts of things that his father never had to reconcile that his, his sons would, would need to make sense of in order to, to live their lives. And, and, you know, families, all of our families are just generally a whole lot more complicated than maybe they first appear. And um, it, it's, it's just been such a pleasure to get into sort of the the richness and the depth of the story um that i think it's you know it's it had been there all along but it it it's just been it's been such an honor to to do this work you know you're kind of echoing something about arthur miller i think he shared the same thoughts about the death of marilyn monroe which is mm. really interesting connecting the lines between literature and, and writers thoughts uh i sat down years ago for my tv program called davidson and company with a gentleman who wrote the book called Down to the Soundless Sea, or Looking Down to the Soundless Sea, and um, Tom Steinbeck, John Steinbeck's son. And the reason why I mention that is you live in a part of the east end of Long Island, 
where there's a writing community. But just go back to that title, Down to a Soundless Sea. When the survivors, yeah. when, when the survivors look out, do they hear anything to this day, the survivors of the event? Or is it just visual? Any ghosts, any echoes? Oh, um, I think that, that Mary has, has been visited by, by something, you know, that we can't really wrap our minds around in terms of, you know, the afterlife or what have you. Um, I mean, I'll say as, as the sort of storyteller of this, this book, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at the water, whether I'm at the sound or I'm in the ocean. And, you know, we were talking earlier, I had recently written this piece for the times about my cold water swims with this incredible woman that survived an unimaginable tragedy. And I have to say every time I'm in the water, um, since I've met these men, you know, they come to mind. Um, whether I'm walking on the the shore. So I can only imagine, um, what that must feel like for their survivors that, that you feel like there's some piece of their DNA, you know, floating around, um, in that sea. I have to believe it's there, you know, it might not be able to be detected by some scientific, you know, thing that we've discovered as humans, but, um, no, they're very much part of the living history of this place. I want to switch gears for the last question before we let you go. Yeah, yeah. That uh, if I can go back in time, I was going to be at the Algonquin Roundtable. But mm, all, those, all those, all <laughs> those. Please ca- save me a seat. Yeah, I will. We can go. <laughs> we can go together. Hopefully, because you'll probably have better access than I would. <laughs> I have no writing credibility whatsoever. The reason why I mention that is you live in a part of the east end of Long Island where there is a, a, an interesting writing community. Community. Mm-hmm. So if you could have your own modern day version of the Algonquin Roundtable. Uh, mm. I, I reached out to Tom Clavin to get your contact information. There oh, are, Tom's definitely my table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's been on this show multiple times, this program multiple times. So if you can sit down, the New York Times is a great thing on Sunday in the Book Review. They ask these questions, these mini interviews at authors. And one of the questions they ask, if you could have a dinner with three people in the past or the present, who would you pick? So I'm going to throw that question to you because of the people you've been around and who would you like to sit down and break bed, bread with and just have an interesting conversation? Oh, interesting. Well, I'm certainly going to pick Tom, uh, Tom Clavin, who recently took me out to lunch and just has been so wonderful uh, to me from the moment I reached out to him. What a lovely, lovely and kind writer and journalist to know. Um, I'm going to choose Colson Whitehead because oh, he choice. lives in Jack Harbor <laughs> and he writes incredible books. Um, although he probably wouldn't be able to make time for my meal, but maybe he'd be able to be there. Um, I'm going to bring Nora Ephron back from the dead because I am obsessed with her um, and just find her. Uh, she used to spend a lot of time out here as well. Right. Um, I'm going to choose uh, George Plimpton because my next book uh, may have, uh, parts of the Paris Review in it. And I'm also going to have Peter Matheson at my table because uh, I am uh, totally uh, obsessed with men's lives and there's nothing that he's written that I don't totally love. So those are my people. That's, that's a great choice. So I will sit in the corner <laughs> and be a fly on the wall. And I actually got to spend some time with Hallie Efron, who's a good writer in her own right. She's not as well known as the other sisters, but she's a pretty good writer. Oh, very neat. Very yeah. neat. Okay. Neat. So my guest has been Amanda Fairbanks. The book is called The Lost boys of montauk um fascinating book great job and i know you're doing your tour so everything kind of blends in together but no 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 these are such great questions what are you talking about so i and i know you're doing people interview me and don't even read the book beforehand (laughs) but i know you're doing the event with tom 
at, at Montauk. So I'm yes, going to ask. I'm going to ask. I'm going to grovel and ask for one favor. I know you have baseball hats with the title of the book. So I do. If you send me one, I would love to have it. I would Can wear I it proudly. Send one to you. Oh, wonderful. All right. Wonderful. Okay. Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and your questions. All right, take care, my friend. Okay. Uh, after the break, singer-songwriter Stuart Marcus joins us. Live music back in the studio after recovering, in a sense, although we haven't totally recovered from COVID. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the Arthur Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
it's all right. After many dark days, it's nice to hear, hear that the sun is coming back and coming out again. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast. Periscope. Joining us in studio, singer-songwriter Stuart Marcus. Stuart, welcome. Thanks for coming in. I can't play anything, not even the kazoo, but I'm a big fan of people who play multiple instruments, especially the guitar. And I have an interesting guitar story. You see where I'm going. Nancy Wilson has a new album out right now, a solo album. And she tells this story that uh, she found out that Eddie Van Halen, a great, great guitar player. Oh, my God, yeah. Never had an acoustic guitar. Really? She sent him acoustic guitar. He stayed up all night and wrote a song for her. Wow. And now on her new album, she has a new album, as I said, she has a song called For Eddie, because I think he he, uh, he passed away. Oh, my God, that was terrible. Yeah. He was he was young, and he was amazing. I was in high school, right. and, and he was, you know, like five, six years older than me when, when Van Halen broke. And... There are things that he does that I still can't figure out how he does. Just uh, his fingers were a blur. You'd you'd need high speed video <laughs> just to see what he was he was accomplishing there. Uh, so it just pains me to think of, of someone that talented, you know, passing away that young. So we're going to go back to the early days of your career, or even before that. When was the first time you picked up a guitar? Uh, my grandparents gave me one for my eighth birthday, and uh, I was I was taking piano lessons at the time. And and I hated practicing, I <laughs> uh, but I I loved the guitar. So my, my piano teacher would give me a guitar lesson <laughs> after the piano lesson just to sweeten the pot a little bit for me. And uh, you know she would you know give me mimeographed sheets of old folk songs and things like that with the basic chords on it. And uh, and I worked at it and found that I I liked practicing the guitar better than I liked practicing the piano. Mainly. Maybe because I, you know, saw the performers, you know, the folkies and the rock and rollers who played their guitars, and I thought that was really cool. Interestingly, uh, the song "Crazy on You" by Heart was one of the first things I figured out how to play just by listening to the radio. Yeah, I remember sitting there in, in my parents' basement playing my guitar and hearing this. And hey, I know how she does that. And all of a sudden, you realized, wow, electric or acoustic, same thing, basically, just played with a different touch, different technique, but uh, same six strings. Oh, that was unexpected. Good things happen when you don't plan for them. Now, I've, I did many, many years on radio. And when you bring people in and they hear themselves, they say, I don't sound like that. Because the way our head is shaped, our ears are behind, and our mouth is forward. So when mm -hmm. you heard your voice for the first time, did it sound strange? I mean, you're a pro, so you hear, you've heard your voice a lot on recordings and doing stuff in studios. But it, did, did it sound different to you when you heard your voice the first time? Because the way we hear it in terms of our ears is a lot different than the way other people hear the way we speak and sound. Yeah, it still sounds strange. I've just learned to adjust to it. But, yeah, we hear, we hear more of the sounds traveling through our skulls. Right. Than uh, than we do th you know of ourselves obviously, than we do through our ears, and so when I hear myself recorded on a you know a good mic that's unbiased, 
Uh, it sounds a lot more trebly to me than I'm, I'm used to. Uh, so yeah, that just takes a little bit of adjustment, but you know, like anything else, you get used to it and you hear yourself on the monitors and say, Oh yeah, that, that's me. That's what they hear. Might not be what it sounds like to me, but that's what they hear. And then, then that's fine. Your musical, musical catalog is really interesting. You're sitting here with us as a singer songwriter. You have a duo, I believe you can talk about. You have a group. You do covers, you do originals, you do gigs wherever you can, because everybody right now coming out of the pandemic is going to take work no matter where they can get it. Sure. Give us a little bit of background about your musical roots and history. Oh, boy. Uh, there was always music at my house. My parents are both very much into music. My dad actually played trumpet uh, in high school and college. He had a semi-pro dance band uh, back in the day. Um he still sings in the Rochester Jewish Chorale. Um, and, uh, I grew up with that. I grew up hearing, you know, Broadway show tunes on, on vinyl LPs and, and, you know, Fiddler on the Roof was always getting played on cassette. Uh, I was very young. I remember hearing, you know, people singing folk songs, Peter, Paul, and Mary. I, I, my parents had, uh, Harry Belafonte's breakthrough album. Uh, they're also very much into the big bands and the crooners, you know, like Sinatra and, and, uh, 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 Andy Williams and, and, and that sort. And, uh, I, I discovered rock and roll kind of on my own. I still have a love of the big bands. I love a great horn section. Um, I discovered rock and roll kind of, you know, by proximity to my friends and listening to the radio. Um, you know, in the old days, we had an AM radio that Always had a, an AOR, or not, not AOR, MOR, middle of the road station that played some country and some pop and that sort of thing, some soft rock. Uh, but I kind of discovered the Beatles on my own and, uh, I, I remember my uncles coming up to visit from Brooklyn and bringing with them the Simon and Garfunkel Bridge Over Troubled Water album on cassette and i thought it was the most amazing thing i'd ever heard until oh a half dozen years later when i discovered crosby stills and nash and all of a sudden wow three-part folk rock harmony did it uh that was probably the biggest musical influence you know, that that whole movement and the beatles and uh billy joel and and bob dylan as songwriters but i kind of anything that was interesting musically i got into so i loved Queen, I loved Jethro Tull, I loved The Who, I liked Frank Zappa, uh, I liked Led Zeppelin, and then later on sort of rediscovered folk music as uh, I got a little bit older. Um, I got into, started getting into sea shanties through a, a woman that I used to work with, and, uh, and I'd always been into tall ships, so the two of them went very well together, and I began to realize that traditional folk music is kind of a window into history through the eyes oh, of so. yeah of of the songwriters of the people that were singing it and I've always been a history buff so that kind of turned me on to that uh and just you know I like sort of exploring and discovering things and uh and yeah as a professional musician you know if I don't hate it <laughs> I'll play it especially if there's money to be made doing it so uh, I just had a gig last Saturday where uh, it was an 80th birthday party, and they asked me if I could do a lot of uh, Frank Sinatra and and, uh, and you know other music of that era. Um, and uh, I'll be doing a gig. Actually, I did a gig a month ago singing sea shanties in Brooklyn. Those have become kind of hot again right. and in. And uh, and my band Gathering Time did a uh, a TV show, an internet show 
last night, and we'll be playing at uh, the Tillis Center this coming Saturday. No, no, I'm sorry, not the Tillis, at the Landmark on Main Street. Yeah, I know Landmark. Coming. I started a program there years ago called Conversations for Main Street. I love that venue. They're uh-huh. still doing the program, not involved, but it's a, uh-huh. it's a great place. Yeah. I'm curious about how you work your instrument. I read an article about um, John Kulapinto wrote this thing about how we use our voice and why it's so important in terms of evolution. Now, the voice consists of, in a sense, your vocal cords and your lungs. Mm -hmm. So as a technician and somebody I imagine that wants to keep growing and growing, who has went through this process early on, how do you work that part of what you do, keeping your vocal cords healthy? Keeping, in a sense, your lungs and, your, in a sense, your cardiovascular system working yeah. properly. Um, it's it's important to be healthy, for one. And and I, I admit, you know, over the year of COVID, I wasn't getting as much exercise as I should. I mean, there's a good bit of exercise and walking around and schlepping equipment and standing and doing gigs. Um, and... Uh, all that, you know, anything that increases your lung capacity is good for your voice. You know, the key to making your voice work is keeping lots of air going through it. That way the, the air is doing the work and your vocal cords are just vibrating. Uh, you never want to, you know, I was fortunate that in, in high school, my parents were able to uh, send me for voice lessons. And uh, I learned a lot of technique there. And I've you know, occasionally had a coach to help me brush up a little bit because everyone develops bad habits. I probably have a, a few new ones now. Um, but uh, you, you always want to be conscious about not straining your voice and uh, keeping it as clear as possible. And like anything else, you kind of learn the subtleties of how it works. Things like, you know, when you can flip up into the falsetto range to get the extra, you know, close to an octave or so out of it. Um, and just like anything else, you know, the more you do it, like playing the guitar, you know, you try to do new things and someone gives you a tip or shows you how to do something and you work on that and you master it. And all of a sudden you got another little tool in your pocket. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of like that. If you just joined us in studio, we love having you, Stuart Marcus, singer, songwriter, etched in my brain are certain voices. Obviously, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Another one is Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. He articulated his words perfectly. And because of that, the songs and the emotions came through. And, mm-hmm. and you referenced him. And let's just listen to him. You want to have an emotional visceral response. But the other one that I liked an awful lot was and is Jackson Brown, Late with the Sky, the Great Pretender. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ask you to kind of give the genesis of this next song, which is an original I believe View from the Give me the title of the song. Uh, the View from the Side of the Road. Now, is there any Jackson Brown influences in this song? I didn't realize it at first, but I, I think there is. Um, yeah, if you listen to Running on Empty yes. and this song, you, you'll find some similarities. And that's, you know, any any artist, musical or otherwise, I think is kind of like a sponge for influences. Yeah. I'm just tuning up my guitar while we're talking here. And uh, sometimes they come out in ways that you don't really realize it until after the song is done. And you say to yourself, oh, wait, that reminds me of something. And sometimes it can be blatant, you know, like George Harrison didn't realize how much he was cribbing He's So Fine when he wrote My Sweet Lord, but he got in a lot of trouble for it. Um, and sometimes, like hopefully in this one, you can say, oh, yeah, I can see how you might have had that in mind, but it is a very different song. 
Um, this is definitely a, a road song. It's a Long Island road song, so it's about being stuck in traffic. And it, that's actually the genesis of it. I was uh, on the southern state, and uh, I was running late. And uh, I, I looked around, and I didn't recognize the scenery around me. And I got nervous. I thought I'd missed my exit because I was in a, a rush. And I thought, oh, shoot, I'll have to go back, you know, flip around, go home. And uh, then a little while later, as traffic called forward, uh, I realized I hadn't missed my exit. <laughs> I just was so used to staring at just the pavement ahead of me. You zone out on that, the southern state, but you've got to pay attention. It's not yeah. often today's cars and an SUV. It's not. Yeah. Well, just being stuck, I was so used to just, you know, watching right ahead of me. I hadn't really bothered to take in the scenery. And I'd been living here for over eight years at that point. And I just, you know, it said, there's a, a lesson in life there. So, uh, so that's how this one came out. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Going ten thousand more cars are headed to their temperatures rising, their horns are all blowing, and all of them seem they're competing with you. You don't even notice the trees and the hillsides, the veins in your eyeballs are set to explode. Your attention fanatic on that to turn sideways to take in the view from the side of the road. Ah. Staring at taillights, staring at pavement, staring at white lines that don't seem to end. Holiday traffic. Computer enslavement, it's almost not worth it to visit a friend. The overlooks turn off the Palisades Parkway, but only the tourists take time to unload. To take in the river, the boats and escarpments that make up the view from the side of the road.
I'm going to try to get you in trouble. Okay? I, I don't watch American Idol, but I've watched all 10 years and 20 seasons of The Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, singing competition, this is my opinion. I think The Voice has jumped the shark, if you know that. Phrase. Oh, really? Sure. Yeah, I haven't watched it too much. So. Okay. So, but I'm just curious way. about, you're a working musician. What are your feelings about singing competitions? Is, is it more more reality TV rather than developing new rising talents? It's a little of both. Uh, I've never entered because it's a solo competition. And for the last uh, 13, 14 years, I've had this wonderful trio called Gathering Time. And uh, anyone I know that's been on The Voice, you know, says it's a long time away from performing to do this show. And I wouldn't want to do that to my bandmates. And the band just, you know, with the exception of the pandemic year, uh, has just been on the steady upward, you know, ascent trajectory. So I don't want to interrupt that. Um, but I don't know exactly what it is they're looking for either, because I know some people that have just wonderful voices that didn't make it past the first round or two. So I, I kind of wonder what is it that they're, they're looking for. Um, pretty much everybody that's won the competition has had a great voice and there's an awful lot more people with really good voices than there is room for artists on the billboard top 40 or top 100. So, you know, I can't blame anybody for, for entering it. It's, it's one way to, to get noticed. Um, you know, the industry has changed significantly over the last 20 years. And, uh, so it's kind of like you do what you need to, 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 to make a living and try to get noticed. So I don't, you know, look down on anybody that's won it. Pretty much everybody that's won the voice or American Idol has had a really good voice. Uh, so, uh, and it's no guarantee of sustained success either. I mean, there, there are people that have won both of those shows that, you know, after a year in the spotlight kind of disappeared off the radar also. You know, when I'm working, especially with these kinds of interviews and writers, and people, I, I take a break and I listen to music. I, mm-hmm. I, we mentioned on a, on a phone conversation that she's passed away. I mean, it was a huge fan of B.B. Snow mm-hmm. and also opening up a concert for Jackson Brown, which is unknown Phoebe Snow and they're very well known huh. Brown. So when you kind of just want to relax, who would you listen to besides your own material? And I don't like listening to myself, quite honestly. <laughs> or even watching myself in the days of television. I, just I, don't, I don't like it at all. But who, who would you listen to? Hmm. I, I don't listen to my own material to relax, actually. Um, when, when, when you record a lot, you develop what they call studio ears, where you just hear details in the sounds the that you, I, I'll, I'll be listening. Like I, film I just, editing, you see things you don't want to see. Yeah, so, you know, I could be listening to uh, a recording of mine or a gathering time, then I'll hear, oh, gee, that was slightly underneath the pitch right there, you know, and it goes by for anybody else so quick they wouldn't even notice, but it's like, ah, I should have, re- you know, recut that, you know, just, just punched in for that note. Or, oh, this mix, you know, that guitar is a little bit too high, or, you know. You can drive yourself crazy on it. So I tend to, once it's done, I take a long break from listening to anything that we've done. And, and I can't help paying attention to it. Um, I usually flip on, I'm, I'm still a radio listener. Okay. So, uh, where I live, I listen to WFUV, which oh, is sure. coming out of, and, and, yeah, and, uh, several of their shows have been very good to, to me on Gathering Time. There's a commercial station here on Long Island's East End called WEHM which I just love. Every time I come out here, I, I flip it on. Uh, there's one out of Westchester called, I think it's called The Peak, 107.1. I forget what uh, the call letters are. Um, but uh, similar 
you know, acoustic alternative kind of mix. EHM I love because they play classic rock, but they play alternative recordings or or or, or alternate mixes or, or live versions of the songs. But give me a Some song. Of, give me a performer. Oh. I'm putting you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> You're not going anywhere right now. I never get tired of listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, I think Billy Joel, you know, I grew up in Rochester. I knew very little about Long Island, but I knew Billy Joel was from here. I mean, I had cousins here, but, uh, he was from Hicksville, lived in Huntington. I didn't know where those places were, but, uh, but Billy Joel is one of my favorite all time song, singer songwriters. Um, uh, Springsteen, I think is an amazing songwriter, just tells great stories. Um, grew up in the Beatles. And and at this point, a lot of their stuff I've heard enough of, but some of their lesser played songs, the album cuts, I just still absolutely love to listen to. Um, I love Chicago. I love the sound of a, a horn section, like C- I said. CTA used to be. Yeah, Chicago Transit Authority. Uh, Queen. Oh man, well, some his, his voice. His voice, but they developed a, a musical sophistication that was unusual for for hard rock. I mean, I remember listening to it, and a friend of mine who had started taking music theory before I did back in did high school said, movie, that, "Oh yeah, did you like the movie? very much I so, very much so." Said there's a lot of music theory in their in their songs, and once I started studying music theory, I saw what he meant. Um, you know, there's you know good pop music that has sort of a level of complexity that takes you a little while to figure out what they're doing. You know, as a professional musician, to me that makes it that much more interesting. Uh, so there's a a lot that I'll I'll turn on and flip on. Here's a here's a Billy Joel story. Okay. Billy Joel lived pretty close to John Lennon. Hmm. He could row a boat over. He said, Billy Joel said, Billy Joel said this, I never wanted to introduce myself to him. I didn't want to bother him. Hmm. And later on, he found out that John Lennon knew who he was. So to, to this day, he regrets hmm. never introducing himself to John. This is Billy Joel. Uh-huh. There's a hierarchy. Oh, yeah. Well, we all stand on the shoulders of, of those who went before. And, uh, you know, gathering time, you know, stands on the shoulders, I guess, if you will, of, of Crosby, Stills and Nash, who stood on the shoulders of Peter, Paul and Mary, who stood on the shoulders of the Weavers, who stood on the shoulders of Woody Guthrie. Woody had very broad shoulders, you see. Um, so, um, um, you know, we all have our influences and, those influences built on other influences and there's other things that come in and uh, you know hillary is a huge fan of prince my, my bandmate hillary fox song um she and i both love queen and you know it's hard to see where the influence comes in but uh you know queen was an amazing harmony group also if you listen oh, yeah. to their um, just the opening chords of bohemian rhapsody is this the real life that's I'd have to sit down and figure out what chord they're singing there. It's like a minor seventh, ninth chord or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's what pricked my ears up the first time. And we hear things like that and say, okay, I want to, I want to do something like that because that's really cool. And without having that, you know, would we have thought of what we do? No, you know, maybe. We started this episode of this podcast, Artful Periscope. We're talking about the Lost Boys of Montauk. We're going to kind of finish with your song, which kind of bookends this whole episode, uh, Gloucester Ladies. You want to set that up and what this is about? Sure. I wrote it uh, after reading the book The Perfect Storm, 
which is similar to the the Lost yeah. Boys of, of Montauk. Yeah, I saw the movie also. I, I wrote the song too late to get it into the the movie. Um, but uh, I'd been up to to Gloucester, Massachusetts. I sailed on a, a tall ship back in 1992 and 93, and um, you know it's a fishing town that has lost ten thousand young men, mostly men, uh, to the sea over the last four hundred years or so. Fishing is you know has been what they do, and that's the risk that they take when they go out. And the same thing for the fishermen out of Long Island's East End, Montauk, Sag, Sag Harbor, you know, even Freeport. Um, and, uh, so I wrote, I wrote this song and, uh, it actually, you know, it, it's written to be in the style of a, a traditional maritime ballad. Um, you know, a sea shanty really technically is a, a work song. You know, when you had a dozen, 15 guys all hauling on a line together, uh, a ballad is any song that tells a story. And, and, uh, so I tried to kind of capture the feel of a, a traditional song with it. And, uh, I wrote it like 15, 18 years ago, but just entered it in a songwriting contest uh, sponsored by the Portsmouth Maritime Folk Festival, and uh, and it won last September. <laughs> so, uh, so, this is it. When the seas are calm and the sky is fair and the wind are light and warm It's hard to picture in your mind what it's like at the height of a storm But seas can change and winds grow foul and hurl a ship And the Gloucester ladies wait and pray for their men to return from the sea For hundred years the men set out the Grand Banks for to ply With one eye on the fishing rig the other toward the sky For the sudden storm is such the norm with great ferocity And the Gloucester ladies Wait and pray For their men to return from the sea Ten thousand men set sail again In good ships taut and free And the Gloucester ladies Wait and pray For their men to return from the sea A pitch pole wave strikes from ahead Approaching sea from the side Her bow gets buried in the trough And the crew end up in the tide So many men not seen again God bless their family And the Gloucester ladies Wait and pray For the men to return from the sea Ten thousand men set sail again 
in good shape, stored and free. And the Gloucester ladies wait and pray for their men to return from the sea. church hall there stands a wall ten thousand names upon for every man who worked the sea and disappeared thereon and every one a mother's son a sweetheart or a friend but watery grave is all they have No resting place to tend Ten thousand men set sail again In good shapes, taut and free And the Gloucester ladies wait and pray For their men to return from the sea Ten thousand men set sail again In good shapes, taut and free And the Gloucester ladies wait and pray For their men to return from the sea Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. Artful Periscope Podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs, and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She